Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. This is Season 1, Episode 5 of Wild Olive, and today we're talking about what we gain from considering the Bible in terms of poetry, genre, and more contemporary literature. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird, And I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Jean. And hey, listeners. During the last episode, when we were talking about translation, we wanted to cover another literary dynamic that is affected quite a bit by translation, the rhyme, rhythm, and sound of the epic poetry of the Genesis creation stories. We ran out of time then, but we'd like to pick up the thread again now as we're heading into this broad question of what's to be gained from considering biblical texts alongside other literary works. Before we jump in, though, I want to say something about reading the Bible, the Biblio, the library of ancient texts, as literature. I realize that some people hear the word literature and associate it with the idea of fiction, something that isn't true. I'm not making any assertions about historicity or facticity in referring to the Bible's literary characteristics. Literature is a form of cultural production in which the literary producer creates special effects with language. We're used to special effects in movies, the dinosaur fights in Jurassic World, I love them, by the way, the shattering glass walls in The Matrix, the gigantic explosions and crazy tidal waves in Deep Impact or Meteor. Literature gets produced when someone thinks not just about what to share in language, but how to share it for maximum artistic impact. Storytellers and poets use literary special effects, rhyme, rhythm, meter, symbol, allusion, narrative structure, and lots of other techniques that give a particular form to the content and even add to the content through form. While not every moment of every literary text in the Biblio has been designed for maximum artistic impact, maximum literary impact, it's undeniable that many of the Bible's books and the collection as a whole represent extraordinary artistic achievement. I doubt there's a biblical scholar, pastor, priest, or rabbi in the world who would disagree with that assessment. Jennifer, what's your take on artistry in the Bible? I appreciate this question, Jean, because one of the things it does is pushes me to think about things a little bit differently, since I, as a text person, have been typically focused on lines and meaning and rhetoric and what's being communicated. And I don't think about the artistry very much. But, you know, I do think when the first thing I think of when you ask that is I go to the Psalms, I go to the book of songs, S-O-N-G-S, that is collected there in the 150 Psalms. And, and I think of a very, a wide range of expressions and 
settings and uses and purposes. And um, in particular, I think of a range of emotions that are involved and being expressed there. I think your question also asks me something about the artistic expression or the artistic nature of the entire collection um, as a whole, and even of the events of bringing bringing these together. I think that there's an element of artistry that went into creating the book of Genesis. And it was, I, I think of it as a bit of a weaving, those first five books, you know, it's, it was, I think it was as much an emotional and artistic exp- expression as it was some something theological or intellectual. Um, but but I'm taught to think about it in the theological and intellectual realm. So I like this. I like this question. Um, this is it is literature. It is ancient literature, and it has a lot to communicate to us about the people. I think so. I don't know if that directly answered your question, but. Yeah, that's what I think of when you ask about the artistry of the Bible. It really resonates for me. I'm a huge admirer of the way that it's been. You used the metaphor of weaving, and I'll use the metaphor of stitching to match it, the way that all the different pieces have been stitched together. And it does remind me of some of those extraordinary quilting achievements that you can find if you investigate textile art. There are just so many pieces that have been so artfully combined, and I'm in awe of that. So last time we were talking about the ways that translation affects meaning. In even theology, ideologies of gender, we talked a lot about meaning. Let's talk about how translation affects some of the artistic choices in the first Genesis creation story. Let's talk about something that translation really changes, rhyme. Whenever I refer to the Hebrew creation stories as epic poetry, I'm often asked whether Hebrew poetry rhymes. And here and there, it does. But the rhyme is not the kind of rhyme people think of when they think of 19th century English poetry and earlier English poetry, English language poetry. So I'm also talking about American poetry. Mm -hmm. And That English language poetry from the 19th century and earlier often has regular meter and what we call perfect rhymes, like cat-hat. Same number of syllables, same vowel, just one consonant differs. Often in English poetry, there's a repeating scheme where the rhyme comes at the end of a line, like in this Emily Dickinson poem. The pedigree of honey does not concern the bee. A clover, any time to him, is aristocracy. The syllabic structure creates a beat, a rhythm, and B rhymes with the last syllable in aristocracy, so you get that sound splash at the end of the line that organizes the rhythm and and caps off the line, creating a pause. So it's not that kind of rhyme that we're going to find in ancient Hebrew poetry, and we'll talk a little bit more about what we do find. But before we move on to talking about Hebrew poetry, do you have any English language poets that you um, <laughs> that you really like? Um, what, what are you reading at the moment? This is one of those moments for our listeners where 
<laughs> where our backgrounds very much come through, because I would love to be reading more poetry, but I don't. I don't read poetry the way my colleague and friend Jean does. So I, I like what, sh what she brings out in me, and I like listening and learning about these things, and have actually been exposed to some really fabulous poets because of working with you. So I've enjoyed that. I have to say my current favorite poet, or the one I've read anything of recently, is Mary Oliver. A lot of people love her, and I think with good reason, but I like the way she evokes scenes with very simplistic, not simple, but very almost bare kinds of lines. And I think I've resonated with a couple of her pieces in the last couple of years. And that, that just, my life has changed since then, but it's just to, to think about people with similar life experiences connecting over time that way. So I don't have anything specific to share from her work, but maybe you do. Yeah, I well, I love Mary Oliver, too. My favorite Mary Oliver poem is Wild Geese, but I'm not going to talk about that one because it doesn't use rhyme. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and actually, most of Mary Oliver's poetry doesn't use rhyme. Right, right. Uh, but Oliver does have this one poem that's a self-conscious reflection on the phenomenon of rhyming, and I think I'll share that with our listeners. It's called No Matter What. Goes like this. No matter what the world claims, its wisdom always growing, so it's said. Some things don't alter with time. The first kiss is a good example, and the flighty sweetness of rhyme. No matter what the world preaches, spring unfolds in its appointed time. The violets open, and the roses. Snow, in its hour, builds its shining curves. There's the laughter of children at play and the wholesome sweetness of rhyme. No matter what the world does, some things don't alter with time. The first kiss, the first death, the sorrowful sweetness of rhyme. Hmm. Leave it to Mary Oliver mm -hmm. to de-sentimentalize <laughs> <laughs> rhyming poetry. Right. right? Yeah. But that's an, it, it even though, it's this self-conscious reflection on the nature of rhyme and it's purposely desentimentalizing rhyme because people who don't like regular rhythm and rhyme, they d when they don't like it, they don't like it because to some people it can sound too Hallmark cardish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so yeah. Uh, yeah. Oliver is really purposely experimenting there with rhyme, but making sure it doesn't sound like a Hallmark card. Yeah. Um, but even though... She's desentimentalizing. We still get that rhyme, time, that perfect rhyme. The rhyme is at the end of the line. So it's still a good example of how many English language poets approach rhyme. But the rhyme in ancient Hebrew poetry is not like that. Um, it doesn't have what Oliver calls the sweetness of rhyme, meaning that the rhymes are not perfect which I'm using that word as a technical term, not as a description. It's That's what you call cat hat. It's perfect. Mm -hmm. And not regularly predictable like the rhyme in 19th century English language poetry, not like the kind of rhyme that Oliver is talking about. In the Genesis creation stories, I understand the rhyme, when it does happen, is a kind of a rhyme that we call internal and slant, meaning that rhyme occurs irregularly with in a line. And while there may be some vowel sounds that are similar, 
the consonants will vary so that the rhyme is not a perfect fit. It's kind of wilder, less predictable, <laughs> more playful kind of sound pattern. Do you want to say a little bit about that before I give an example in English of slant, irregular rhyme? Well, I'm thinking of the line that you really enjoy in the opening of Genesis, the tohu vavohu. Mm -hmm. But I'll, I'll let you keep going. Well, I listeners, I wanted to give an example from our contemporary culture of the kind of rhyme that we call internal rhyme, slant rhyme, a rhyme that is departing from the tradition of English language poetry, a lot of English language poetry, and it's from Hamilton. It's from the, um, the, the Hamilton hit my shot. It's packed with internal slant rhyme. Um, here's how it goes. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. The repetition and the parallelism create the beat. The words country, young, scrappy, hungry, repeat the uh and the e sounds in a little flurry of sound. And my understanding, Jennifer's the expert. Jennifer's the one who reads in Hebrew. My understanding from reading about Hebrew poetry is that when it does rhyme, it works like that. Internal, irregular rhyme in the middle of a line with repetition and parallelism creating a kind of a musicality. Uh, Jennifer, do you think that's a fair description? I do. I think that that, that kind does happen. I, I will say, though, when I'm teaching about Hebrew poetry, I usually take us into the realm of talking about a form or a characteristic of poetry called parallelism. And there are half a dozen or so types of parallelisms that you will find in Hebrew Bible poetry. And what this is talking about is that it it often happens over two lines at a time. So when you when you anytime you see in the English or whichever translation you're looking at, if you see instead of it just looking like normal paragraphs, but you see it set apart a little bit differently, line by line, and some slightly indented, that tells you that whatever the source was there was a poetic form of writing. And that means it'll show up in the prophets, it'll show up in the book of Proverbs, the entire book of Psalms. It shows up every now and then in a few of the historical writings or the early writings. And it shows up in the apocryphal content in Daniel. And so I wanted to at least have a quick reference for, for example here. So I pulled in I am in which chapter? I'm in chapter 11 of Proverbs, the first four verses. So that's when we start to finally get into the more pithy kinds of sayings. And and when you think about the pithy sayings of the Proverbs, you have mostly it's antith antithetical or antithesis parallelism. So you have, you state an idea, and then you state the, the contrary to it in the next line as a way to accentuate both. Right. So here at the beginning of Proverbs 1, you have a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but an accurate weight is his delight. So those two go together kind of as a thought, you know, and you have a parallelism. When pride comes, then dis then comes disgrace. But wisdom is with the humble. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. You get the idea. I'm not as big a fan of the of the book of Proverbs just because it's 
so very dualistic and which is appropriate for children you know and that's what the proverb the book of proverbs is primarily doing is teaching for children but the book of psalms i find a, the book of psalms yeah i find a little bit more interesting and as i mentioned before will express an incredible range of emotions setting aside some of the theological meaning here i i just think these are this can be really helpful to point out so i'm in psalm 42 here uh, a few verses in and this is allegedly David or someone writing on behalf of David. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. And so we had two, two, th- two sets of parallels there, right? How I went with the throng and then restating it slightly differently, maybe matching it in intensity or sometimes taking it up a notch. And you'll find those throughout the Psalms. Um, so, you know, and I think I think that's a, a a lovely form of artistry, honestly, right? To think about restating your idea in a slightly different way. And that is similar to what we talk about when we talk about what makes poets so skillful, right? They, they find ways of saying things that we might not have thought of or however you want to think of that. So, yeah. Yeah, as I listen to you, I reflect that the parallelism, I mean, both conceptually, but also just in terms of sound, really creates a beat. And you know who used that to amazing effect was Dr. Martin Luther King. All of that parallelism, and that was that was why his speeches, they rock and roll, right. because they're so attentive to sound, and he was able to just create this momentum in the speeches, which the the rhythms come from the Bible. Yeah, predominantly. Yes. Yeah. Listen, I know that some of our listeners are Jewish or have Jewish family members and friends. So some listeners will have heard what the Genesis stories sound like untranslated. But for anyone who hasn't read or heard Genesis in its original language, would you mind reading the opening lines of Genesis for us? I would be happy to. And as I prepared for our time, I realized I, at one point I was um, reciting some Hebrew in a, in a culture not typical to my own. And someone came up to me afterwards and commented on my pronunciation. So this is the way I was taught to pronounce things. Um, I'm not, I hope I don't offend by the the inflection that I use or the different vowel pronunciations I use. I, it's just how I was taught, but they will be consistent within. So this is the beginning of Genesis, the first five verses. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim va'et ha'aretz. Va'aretz hayata tohu v'vohu. V'hoshech al pane tohom. V'ruach Elohim merechefet al pane hamayim. Vayomer Elohim, Yahi or, Vahi or. Vayar Elohim, et haor kitov. Vayavdel Elohim, bain haor uvein hachoshech. Vayigra Elohim, laor yom, vila choshech karalila. Vahi erev, vahi boker, yom echad. 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There was day and there was night. There was light and there was night the first day. Yeah. Oh, that was lovely. Just I I could listen all day. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I think it's a beautiful language. Would you say a bit about the rhythms and the rhyme in there, however they're created through parallelism or anything you want to comment on, just in terms of the sound? Yeah. Um, It's funny because as I'm saying, as I'm reading through it in this context, I was conscious of wanting to, I I think I was conscious of something different and um, thinking about this rhyming or this meter. Um, But also, there's a, you know, it's, um, I think I have other thoughts running through my mind than what you're wanting to discuss, which I guess is okay. But, you know, I think about um, how I learned to read Hebrew. And one of the things that was, that helped me to learn and to memorize and to kind of internalize this language was someone taught me these opening verses to song. And if I sing this, I think about the lines differently than if I'm trying to read it and to communicate its meaning. And this is essentially a tangent, I think, from what you're trying to talk about here. But I, you know, I just find it really interesting that there's so many different ways that people do end up engaging the same texts. Do they read it? Um, you know, do they read it for inflection? Do they read it in this case, if you're singing it, you're singing, you're attending to the tune more than communicating what's being said, because you have the same tune and the same patterns that you're reading throughout the scripture, which means you're overlooking, um, you know, when I, when I read the line, Vayikra Elohim la or yom, what I've just said there is, and God called the light day, Vilahoshek Karalila, and he called the darkness night. But if you're singing it, you're not going to pause and try to communicate in the same way. And I, I don't know, I feel like I'm not, I'm not on the same wavelength with you right now on the, you know, the the issue of meter and rhythm and rhyme. I think I'm more still in the realm of how do we communicate well with those who are listening to us when we're reading? Because I have a thing about the way so many people within religious contexts tend to read things mono, like kind of monotone instead of with, <laughs> with emotion. Mm. Mm. So I, I don't, yes, I don't have really insightful things right now on the the rhyme and rhythm, but I know that you do, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, I think we've talked about rhyme and rhythm enough. I I I think I think the only thing that I would say is that the rhyme and the rhythm and the sound are partly what create that sense of majesty. It's the beat that yeah. creates the sense of majesty. The idea that creation, the earth, the skies, the flow of time, that they're grand and majestic. So the form Mm -hmm. contributes to the meaning. In literary studies, we'd call the opening lines of Genesis epic poetry, which is poetry with a grand narrative sweep, poetry that aims for maximum artistic impact while providing an origin story for a nation. Epic means big and sweeping, grand narrative. How do biblical scholars think about genre? You talk about that in Permission Granted. Yes. Well, again, this is one of those things I love about working with you is I have been taught to think about those opening chapters as primeval myth. Um, So these are the 
ancient stories that explain or give backstories to um, some of the basic things about human nature and humans living together. You know, we have the, the creation of the world, and then you have this issue in the garden, and however you understand that, and you have Cain and Abel, and then you have, you know, people moving around, and then you have floods, and then you have ver- the creation of various languages and cultures, and that's all just good backdrop. And then you get to the story of Abraham and Sarah. So I, it's funny because when I first think about epic, I usually go to the story that is created and told about Paul in the book of Acts, because he's out there just doing kind of superhuman things over and over, you know, and having these grand journeys, truly these epic journeys. And so I, you know, again, I like thinking about it differently through your through your lenses, though I think I think it's fair to say that the book of Acts does depict the origin of a new uh, nation or a new group of people, if you will, however you want to handle those those terms here. Yeah, I think I think I'm I'm typically more focused on trying to help people think about the opening of Genesis not as not historical. And so the language of saying primeval myth is one of the steps that helps us, helps me or helps other scholars do that is what, is, what do we mean by myth? Not disrespectfully at all, but what does that help us see in these stories? And I like, and, and I think maybe the use of epic might be even more helpful there. I don't know. I like them both, honestly. When you talk <laughs> about epic, you are right about acts. I think of that as an epic travel narrative. Mm-hmm. Why it hasn't been made into a movie, I don't know. <laughs> um, it's got shipwrecks, scandal, character transformation, contentious internal politicking, courtroom drama, like public brawls. I mean, it, it has everything, right? It's so ripe for, for the Hollywood screen. Okay, on to another artistic yes. feature of the two Genesis creation stories, the visual imagery. There's such rich visual images in both of those creation stories. And these images are partly what has made it so enduring, in my opinion. Its visual splendor also makes it symbolically very dense, like the literary equivalent of cheesecake or tres leches cake, (laughs) four rivers, a tree of life, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a serpent, a forbidden fruit, an angel with a flaming sword. What artist can resist imagery like that. And of course, I always am writing about how later generations of writers have mined the symbolic potential of that imagery by alluding to the creation story imagery to explore all kinds of things relevant to all kinds of readers in all kinds of times. In a few minutes, I do want to talk about my favorite novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Hurston, who did not identify as Jewish, Christian, or particularly religious at all, nevertheless turned to Bible stories for the symbolic resources she needed to explore topics like humanness and nature, curiosity, freedom, desire, vitality, transgression, consequences, and the divine. The divine is always in there. Uh, But before we go there, let's talk about some of chapter three from Permission Granted. Chapter three is titled, What Really Happened in the Garden? Can you share a little bit with our listeners some of the cultural materials that you mentioned at the start of that 
chapter, you mentioned quite a few contemporary cultural images that draw on the Eve as seductress idea or the idea of apple as a symbol of temptation. Can you say a little bit about that? Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that I constantly struggle to or am, am working on with students is guess what is to get them to pay attention to the fact that it's not an apple. <laughs> there isn't there is a fruit tree that's being eaten from but you know the de- the decision to make that an apple happened in I think in the late middle ages because of people's sense of apples as being sensuous um but I mean the the references direct and indirect to the garden story I I think some of the examples I think I mentioned in the book might be a bit dated, but, you know, Desperate Housewives, and then, of course, there have been several spinoffs from that. But the original had, it, it was actually just kind of stunning because it had these, you know, kind of medieval imagery of the scene of the garden. And it was a woman eating an apple, and it was a red mm-hmm. apple. And every time they have an opening, you know, the opening credits, the women, the three desperate housewives are wearing red dresses. And Mm. sometimes they're sitting, they're splayed out in a room full of red apples to demonstrate this sexuality and, and seduction. And that's just one show. But, you know, I walk through grocery stores with this in mind, in general, biblical, biblical allusions in mind. And, it has been surprising to me to see in the last few years how many different types of ways you find in, say, hard cider, some sort of reference to Eve or mm. temptation. So a, a connection between apple and sex and temptation, all from a misunderstanding of this story in Genesis mm. 3. I mean, it's stunning, right? Or even one of my favorites to point out for students because it makes them a little uncomfortable and somehow I like doing that. Maybe I should look into that. But there's a store called Adam and Eve. It's a lingerie and sex oh, toy mm-hmm. store. And mm-hmm. the the logo has an apple at the end with a bite taken out, right? Like, and everybody gets it. <laughs> you don't even have to explain it, but it's not biblical, but it is being yeah. assumed to be biblical. I mean, it's just stunning. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, I think those are my favorite examples that just pop up all over the place around us. Yeah. Or what even, about that? Go ahead. You no, go. there's one other one. Um, when it's the, in the applesauce aisle, there's a line of applesauce and apple juice called Apple and Eve. Mm. Right? Like just n- no seduction, but it's as if we all get that it that it was an apple in the garden when it anyway, clearly yeah. wasn't. I think it was a pomegranate, maybe a fig, but <laughs> yeah, I've heard the tradition of the the pomegranate. There's a British director, Peter Greenaway, who in a movie called A Z and Two Knots, there's a whole conversation between two characters about it was really a pomegranate. So that's actually I find a, the pomegranate a more visually compelling fruit. Me anyway, too. it's Me very too. visually compelling. So I yep. wish we had inscribed the idea of the pomegranate as the forbidden fruit. It's a much more interesting visual image. And speaking again of visual images, can you describe that Bizarro cartoon by Dan Perraro for listeners? I think that's a really interesting one, too. Yeah, that was, I found that early on, and I think in graduate school, as I was working through some of these ideas, and it's much older than that even, but it's one of his early cartoons, and he has depicted a snake, not threatening, just hanging out, you know, lowered down to talk to the woman, and she's hanging out, she's sitting on on the forest floor looking at a computer screen next to her. And on the screen is is a logo of an apple. So it kind of looks like an early Mac. 
um, with a bite taken out of it. And this, the serpent says to her, um, well, no wonder he didn't want you to touch it because then you'd have all the knowledge that he has. And she's just kind of looking at it. You know, it's very, it, to me, it's one of the most spot on representations of what is perhaps more accurately understood to be going on in that story. Wisdom doesn't have, you know, wisdom, knowledge, accessing it. And a question of God, the way God is depicted there, I think is just so interesting um, in G- Genesis 3, 2 and 3, wanting to keep them from certain mm. knowledge. I, I agree. And thanks for helping us just start to mull over the broader themes in the Genesis stories, the, the idea of limits, curiosity, temptation, transgression, knowledge, the consequences of investigating the forbidden, and maybe I would say the cost of wisdom or the the cost of knowledge. <clears throat> I think even intuitively, most of us know that we come by our most valuable knowledge often, I mean, it often hurts and certain kinds of awakenings and certain kinds of awareness do hurt. There, so there's a cost to knowledge. And I think the story is about that. Um, do you think it's reasonable to view the Eve character in Genesis and the so-called fall of humankind idea as being similar to the Pandora's box story from Greek myth? Um, I'm thinking of Hesiod's works and days. It circulated initially around 700 before the common era. And just for listeners, it's the story of a woman, Pandora, who opens a container that's not supposed to be opened. And Pandora opens it and curses on humankind fly out, sickness, death, lots of bad (laughs) stuff. Is Eve, as she's typically interpreted, a kind of a Pandora figure, Jennifer? Um, I think, I think as she's typically interpreted, yes, I think she is. I don't think that's, I don't think it's a fair comparison in terms of what's going on in those two stories. And just to be clear, the name Pandora means all gifts. So, and and it's an interesting thing since all the things that fly out are negative in Pandora's box as compared to what I think could be suggested or what I think is that, you know, a woman sees thing this is good for knowledge and it's pleasing to the eye and she takes a bite, you know, the knowledge of good and evil in and of itself, I don't think is what takes down humankind. <laughs> and I don't think of us, I don't think of it actually as a step down or a fall. I actually learned from a rabbi initially to read that part of the story as a step up. A thing that separates us from other mammals, other animals is this having this knowledge. Um, what I think, I think the way I read Genesis three is, is that I see it as a really complex, t- several layered story. And, you know, I think that God is depicted as being rather petty. And I think that at the end of the story, we get a few consequences. And I think that was the motivating factor for writing this story. Why are these things a part of our world? Why is it that these snakes are all around us and they're dangerous to us? Why is it that this there is such a struggle in producing children? Why is it that these men rule over us? Why is it, you know? 
and so forth and so on. And so we have these realities of human existence that are, they're trying to give a backstory for, and I'm not sure they succeeded, but they did the best they could. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. And so I get really frustrated with all the negativity that's put upon Eve in this story, because I see her as someone who's curious and courageous. And that's a woman I want to hang out with. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So I just, I don't like that the two are compared, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for reminding us that in Jewish interpretation, the idea of a fall or the idea of original sin, it's not a thing. I really appreciate being reminded of that. Hey, let's circle back to the novel I mentioned earlier, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God. Um, Listeners, in case anyone isn't familiar with Hurston, she's a Harlem Renaissance writer. She studied at Columbia University in New York, where she trained as an anthropologist with Franz Boas, who is a celebrated anthropologist. Hurston considered herself a folklorist in addition to being a novelist. She traveled throughout the South studying Black rural cultures and writing novels. Their Eyes Were Watching God is probably her most famous novel about a beautiful young woman called Janie, raised by her grandmother. The grandmother had been enslaved but had become free. And the grandmother is determined to marry Janie to what she, the grandmother, thinks is a quote unquote, respectable man. Janie's desires, curiosity, and freedom doesn't enter into the grandmother's consideration. I see Janie as a kind of Eve character. Uh, Jennifer, can I read you something? And can you tell me what you see going on symbolically with the visual imagery? Yes. All right. So this is from their eyes. We're watching God. When we're introduced to Janie, she's in her 40s, she's been through a lot, and the narrator says this about her. Janie saw her life like a great tree in leaf, with the things suffered, things enjoyed, things done and undone. Dawn and doom was in the branches, end quote. I'm going to read another little quote and then just let you say what you see. Another part of the narration also draws a connection between knowledge and trees, nature and God, and here it is, again, from the novel. Quote, She knew things that nobody had ever told her. For instance, the words of the trees and wind. She often spoke to falling seeds and said, I hope you fall on soft ground. Because she had heard seeds saying that to each other as they passed. She knew The world was a stallion, rolling in the blue pasture of ether. She knew that God tore down the old world every evening and built a new one by sunup, end quote. The novel's symbolic language sounds very Genesis-influenced to me. Does it sound that way to you, Jennifer? I think it does. I, you know, as you're reading through this, I'm thinking about the parallels and of course, the sun up, sun down, the creating of a world. There's some parallel. There are parallels there. This idea of the seeds that you know, the the seeds from the trees, or what we're to eat, all these kinds of things. But I think one of the things that m- I think makes me sad, I suppose, is that the ancient writers weren't trying to write a novel in the same way that Hurston is, and for better and for worse, theirs was much more stripped down. And it isn't as luscious as what I 
here, here from Zora Neale Hurston that I enjoy. Um, and, and I think that I come from a tradition that has taught me to read certain things, to read the Bible it's, itself through very theological lenses. And I've been taught and have worked hard for many years to undo um, the judgment and the sinfulness and the negativity that is that many people are taught to read onto this story that this is about sin and this is about you know these things, and so it's hard to see the beauty sometimes of in some of these stories. And I'd much rather listen to and read what Hurston is saying. I mean this this beautiful language, right? You know, the, the opening of chapter three has the serpent talking to the woman, which in and of itself is fun, right? And, but in the ancient world, serpents or snakes were associated with, with wisdom. It was a positive association. And right out of the, the gate, right, there's a, this snake essentially is ultimately being thrown under the bus. We're, there's a, there's a reason by the end of the story to not like snakes. Um, and so, I, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of layers there, I think. Um, I find, I find her, I find the woman and the snake, I find that to be the most interesting part of the story. And the, the as I mentioned before, the, the courage it takes. And the idea that she knows things that nobody ever told her. I don't know, I, I just find this a more inviting way to think about some of those old the ancient ideas. Well, that's why I really love reading biblical texts alongside modern texts that use biblical allusions, because I think that the modern texts can help us see things in the ancient texts that sometimes we don't see if we're very much raised on religious interpretation. And also... If we grew up never reading the Bible at all, mm -hmm. the modern texts that use biblical allusions or draw on biblical imagery, they return us to this ancient library of texts which so many writers have used as a source of symbolic material. And Hurston is a fantastic example of that. Um, I should also say, I'm thinking about your chapter three, the chapter three of Permission Granted, and you, you talk a bit about a connection in Genesis with trees and knowledge or wisdom. You've talked about the connection of the serpent and wisdom, and, and you also call our attention to Genesis chapter three, verse six, and you point out that Eve, quote, noticed that the tree was desired to make one wise, end quote. And you go on to ask, isn't the knowledge of good and evil something we consider to be an essential aspect of being a responsible adult? Um, do you want to say more about how if we let go of the original sin interpretation, if we let go of the fall of humankind interpretation. Can you talk about how the story can be read as a meditation on processes of knowing, processes of awakening? Hmm. Well, I, you know, I think that's what that segment does for us, right? The snake comes up to her, or serpent comes up to her and says, hey, did God say you couldn't touch anything in the garden? And she's like, oh, no, 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 no. He said, God said we could eat from anything in the, tr in the garden except the one in the middle, you know. 
and we weren't even supposed to touch it. And the day we do, we'll die, you know. And, and the serpent says back, you know, that's not the truth. <laughs> that's not <laughs> what's going on here. God knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll be like God's, knowing good and evil. Um, you know, who in our culture, who in our society as humans does not have the knowledge of good and evil? I think that's a helpful way to, it was for me initially, to reframe what's going on here. Well, children, although we can, we can see they figured out pretty quickly, they don't necessarily know all the rights and wrongs. And then people, I playfully say in my chapter that sociopaths don't, although they tend to, they just don't care, right? So beyond that, having the, the knowledge of good and evil is actually a, a very powerful and important thing. And at times, yes, there is a downside to it. It means we have a conscience. <laughs> and sometimes it's a bummer to have a conscience. And yet I'm grateful that I do. You know, it kind of comes full circle. So I find this to be kind of a, a powerful, a powerful story about empowering humans. And right after that, when it says that they've both eaten from the fruit, because the man was standing there and she handed it to him, and their eyes were opened. This mm. is this is language, almost a universal symbol for enlightenment to talk about eyes being open, because obviously their eyes were open prior to then, right? So we're talking about something internal, mm. something bigger. And, you know, students will point out that sexual awareness also, or, you know, your your experience with it, something opens up within you in terms of your understanding and knowing. And, and I get that too. I get that that's part of why people can read this as more about sex than just knowledge. But I think that this is, I think that this is an important element of who we are as humans. And that that's, again, back to the point that it was the woman who was courageous enough to do it. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like that reading. Um, in Their Eyes Were Watching God, I, I, I want to get us wrapped up here yes. because I know we're, we're talking for a while. So in Their Eyes Were Watching God, when Janie is summing up the wisdom that she's gained, uh, she's talking to her friend Phoebe and she's summing everything up. Janie says, quote, it's a known fact, Phoebe, you got to go there to know there. Your papa and your mama and nobody else can't tell you and show you. Two things everybody's got to do for themselves. They got to go to God and they got to find out about living for themselves. And that's the end of the quote. So in the Genesis story, Eve goes there to find <laughs> something out yes. for herself. She forges a more complex relationship with God than she had at the beginning of the story. The story connects transgression with knowing, with knowledge. Is it too much to say that the story portrays transgression as a process of discovery, a process of making knowledge, a process that complicates and alters the relationship between humans and the divine? Do you want care to riff on what Eve discovers to close us out? You know, I like, I like taking that angle on the story. Mm. And then the biblical scholar in me says, but I don't think that that's how it's set up. I think that when God tells them not to eat from this, I mean, so when God tells them not to eat of this, that's a, it's an interesting parameter or limitation that you would set up for a child, 
because you're not explaining why. You're just saying, don't do this. And and yet he's also telling them not to eat of something is a way of getting them to eat of that thing. I mean, we all know that about human nature. <laughs> right. So, you know, when I hear you bring this much more rich engagement to this story, talking about transgression and this process of discovery, I don't know that Genesis 2 and 3 hold up to that level of scrutiny and that that depth of human engagement and pursuit. But I like it. I like mm. what you're seeing. And I like what you're bringing to the table in terms of how to think about a potential connection between these ancient stories and and who we are. It may just be that I have these old theological lenses on of judgment that I just can't, I have a hard time fully getting to where you are. I don't know if that makes sense, but sure, I, I understand. Um, I'm I'm I think I'm back over here in this in this camp of wanting to invite people to see, pay attention to how God is actually being depicted here because He's a bit petty, you know. And and why would God want to keep us from the knowledge of good and evil? What's going on there, you know? Could it be because maybe back to your point, Jean, you know, an all this isn't an all knowing God yet, but a God might want to protect us from some of the hurt and the discovery and what does happen in that process. Perhaps God wants to keep us innocent and naive because that's not as hard, but it is also not as rich and rewarding, you know, so I, 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 I kind of see the the way God is depicted in Genesis two and three is a bit of a straw God, not a strong and empowering one. So I I'm okay that they the two humans transgress his boundary for them because it's it leads to such important things. And I don't know that transgressing boundaries is always is always the same. I guess so when you know when you when you ask about this process Absolutely. of discovery, right? Um, and and the the Christian church has very much picked up on the idea that they are disobedient and that that's the central problem in this story. And I don't I think their disobedience is actually the, what sets people free. So mm. Mm. <laughs> I don't see so it as in, a central yeah. problem. Yeah, right. It's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know we could go on for a long time, but thank you so much for the conversation. It's just always a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, I think we'll have to leave it there. Sounds good. Thank you, Gene. This is Matt Byrne, one of the editors and producers at Wild Olive. Thank you for listening. If you like game-changing conversations about the Bible, literature, and culture, please hit subscribe and tell others all about Wild Olive. Nick Stubblefield composes our music, and you'll find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. You contact Gene or Jennifer at genepatrol.com or jennifergracebird.com. Catch you next time!